acorns are jumping off my Chinese house. Two ducks in my spyglass, for as a mouse is Welcome to Yarns at Yin Hu, a podcast about the fiber arts and other post-apocalyptic skills. Episode 217, Wit Beyond Measure, Sunday, February 23rd, 2019. I'm your host, Sarah. You can find me on social media as Sarah Pomegranate. And each time I record an episode, I post show notes, photographs, and links to things I talk about on my website, yarnsatyinhu.com. Today's episode features the following segments, the back porch, the front porch, and off the shelf. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I hope you are well. I hope you have been able to make time in your busy lives for the fiber arts that you love. I am podcasting here in dreary, dark, and cold Delaware Water Gap, Pennsylvania, where a a very thick and dark rain has been falling all morning. And I am trying very hard to get my recording wrapped up because the Castle Inn, which is usually a blissful place of peace and quiet on a Sunday morning, is gearing up for a wedding expo this afternoon. And I hope to get all of my recording in before there's a lot of noise. Since I recorded last, I have been doing a lot of knitting. I think I've just really found a groove with a pattern and I was able to do a lot of knitting even in social situations. So I finished the project I had just been talking about starting in episode 2016. That design is Nimue, that's N-I-M-U-E. It's a design by Cerulea Rose and it appeared in issue 27 of Pom Pom Quarterly. It's the issue that was edited by Nora Gon and features a lot of cabled designs. Nimue probably has the least difficult cables in the entire magazine. It's very simple and the shape is very accommodating and forgiving and the entire thing is knit flat. So if you don't care for purling, this may not be the garment for you, but I found it pretty meditative and my work on the Hedgewitch shawl kind of taught me how to be at ease with pearl rose. So Uh, I call this design the uh, contemporary warrior princess look. (laughs) 
Uh, it's cropped and very gently shaped, and it's a perfect layering piece for over sleeveless tops and dresses because it kind of cuts you off at your waist at sort of your most slender part. And I think it's really fun to wear. The design begins at the lower back, and then you knit the entire back, just back and forth, stockinette knitting, and then you divide to create the shaping for the neck. You rejoin, and then you knit down the front. And when you knit down the front, that's where the cabling happens. There is a cable detail of three swords, and that's connected to Nimue and you know, all of the King Arthur mythology. And then you bind off and pick up around the entire front to back to knit each sleeve flat. There's a little three-stitch garter detail along the top of the sleeve. And then when you're all done and you've knit both sleeves flat and you've bound off the sleeves, then you try it on and decide how far you want the sleeves seamed and whatever isn't a sleeve is your waistline opening. So you can make it sort of closed up, close to your body, or you can have it kind of flowy. I chose a spot that's kind of in between, uh, but I really love the drape and the wearability of this piece. I knit it in Elsbeth Lavold silky wool in the chocolate colorway. So the color, the look, and the drape is very similar to the photographs in Pom Pom Magazine, uh, but at a price point um, that worked a little better for me. I really do like the way silky wool works up, and I knit it entirely on US 4 needles because I liked the fabric that I was creating, and because I tend to have a very loose gauge. The one challenge I did have with this design was due to my row gauge, and when I picked up all of the stitches for the sleeves, I had significantly fewer stitches than were specified in the pattern. And so my first purl row on the sleeve involved doing quite a few purl front back increases so that I got not all the way up to but very close to the number of stitches called for. And then I just adjusted some of my decreases accordingly to make sure that by the time I got down to the, the cuff, quote unquote, of the sleeve, it would still be uh, enough of an opening that I could get my arm through. So I think you can do a lot of intuitive adjustment with this design, and I, I think it will be extremely versatile, wearable through several seasons, and I really like the look of it. It's a lot of fun to wear. I knit this pattern in solidarity with my friend Mary Beth, and she is also finished with her Nimue. She chose an indie dyed yarn in beautiful speckled pinks and browns, and hers is extremely beautiful. 
So hopefully she will post some photographs on Instagram or her Ravelry page very soon. Once again, that's Nimue, a pattern designed by Cerulea Rose in Pom Pom Quarterly's issue 27. I knit it on Elspeth Levold's Silky Wool in the colorway Chocolate, and I used US size 4 needles. On my needles is a third pair of the Venus and Cupid socks. I'm knitting this pair with some yarn that's been dyed up by my friend Hope Horn, who has Hope's favorite things in Richmond, PA. And she is working on a new set of colorways that are inspired by transfer wear. I don't know if you're familiar with transfer wear. I knew about it, but I didn't know that's what it was called. To make transfer wear, a design from a copper plate is inked and then put on paper, and the paper is applied to unfired clay. And then after the clay uh, is fired, the design appears. The designs usually have outdoor scenes pictured on them, and over time, this has extrapolated, I guess especially in the United States, into souvenir-type pieces that might have a view of Niagara Falls or a national monument or uh, some view from a national park or something like that on them. And then usually there are these sort of ornate, kind of like botanical designs around the outside. I've long been familiar with this type of china, but I didn't know it was called transfer wear, and Hope enlightened me. She's very inspired by it, and she's really inspired by what happens with the colors. Often these transfer wear pieces are blue, but less commonly they are red or pink, sometimes green, and then... Um, probably the least often brown, but I think those pieces are particularly beautiful. I like the way that, you know, the, the muted brown shows up against um, the more pristine looking background of the china. So anyway, Hope has been inspired by this transfer wear to create a colorway, and I am knitting my socks with a prototype of her dyeing. But she will have more examples when she debuts it during her March 23rd open house. And I plan to be there with printed copies of my pattern for the Venus and Cupid socks, as well as a sample pair of my completed socks. So I'm on the foot now of the second sock and kind of motoring along. And it is amazing to me how intuitive a pattern becomes after you've knit it quite a few times because I'm not even looking at my notes anymore. I'm just kind of motoring along and enjoying the knitting on the pattern. It seems like some of you are also enjoying your knitting. Thank you so much for your purchases of Venus and Cupid socks. I really appreciate your support of the podcast with your purchase, and I appreciate your excitement um, and your generosity in terms of my design work. 
Now that these socks are almost finished and Nimue is off the needles, I have only one other design piece that I'm kind of working on behind the scenes, but it's time for some additional cast-ons. So I have cast on a pair of mittens to celebrate the Woolly Thistles annual mitten cowl. And I have selected a pattern that was a gift pattern from my friend Sarah of the Fiber Trek podcast. It's Wit Beyond Measure. It's one of four mitten designs recently issued by Diana Walla of Paper Tiger uh, podcast. And she is just an exquisite designer. This pattern is clear, pristine, and beautiful. I can't wait to get into the color work. So far, I have cast on and knit one cuff, and I am using, for the first time, some beautiful Norwegian tuku wool. It's the yarn that was used to design the pattern. I've chosen slightly different colors. I have a navy blue and a golden yellow color. And that is going to be my approximation for the Ravenclaw colors, because these all correspond to one of the houses at Hogwarts. And Wit Beyond Measure is a really good choice for me because I am in Ravenclaw house, through and through Ravenclaw. And I really love um, the design on the front of these mitts. I have always been amazed at how quickly color work mittens knit up. And uh, so far I've been knitting the cuff on US size zeros on my flexi flip needles. And today I have to decide if I am going to go up to a US one for the color work or stick with the zeros. So of course I did not make a gauge swatch for the mittens. Uh, I'll probably knit a few rounds and decide, you know, what I think in terms of how the fabric looks and what kind of a dimension I'm getting around the circumference of the mitten to make sure that I have enough room because these, I want these to be for me. I don't want to be giving these away because I've made them too large or too small. So once again, that is Wit Beyond Measure, a mitten designed by Diana Walla, and I'm knitting it in Tuku wool so far on US size zero needles. I also want to continue my participation in hand-spun winter knit-along that Emily of the Fibertown podcast is hosting. I have quite a bit of, well, not quite a bit, I have... A little bit of hand spun that's really kind of been burning a hole through my stash and calling to me. The challenge always with hand spun is to match up a pattern with the yarn that you have. I often have found that challenging, but the feeling of satisfaction when you get a pattern to match with yarn that you've made is, is nearly overwhelming. There's kind of nothing like knitting with your own hand spun. And when you get a great pattern 
and you feel it coming together, it's really something special. So I hope that I have been able to identify a good pattern design for the Hog Island gradient that I spun quite a while ago. I purchased a gradient set from the Ross Farm. It's from their Hog Island sheep. Love spinning with Hog Island. And this had um, a kind of, it's a very yellowy kind of natural color. And then a medium mousy brownish color and a deep brown. And when I worked with the fiber, I continued to blend some of that fiber so that I had a continuous gradient from light to dark. I'm also hoping to incorporate some of my botanically dyed Shetland yarn into this project. Well, some of it's Shetland, some of I think is Jacob yarn uh, from when I was working in dyeing at the Fibercraft studio. I have a variety of bits and pieces of, of dyed yarn that I'd like to work into this design as well. So I've been thinking about this yarn and I've been considering a number of patterns that are put in a bundle on a Ravelry group called the Solidarity Swap. In this bundle are patterns by designers who have been largely underrepresented across designer spaces on Ravelry and elsewhere. And so I've been kind of scouring the collections of these designers, finding a lot of very interesting stuff, maybe to knit for later, but looking particularly for something that would work with my hand-spun yarn. And I think, I hope, I've found just the thing. The pattern is called the Arlequin Cowl. It's by Sydney Rocco Torovello, and it's part of her D-Stash Cowlection. I think that's because it's intended to be a set of patterns that could be knit with yarn from your stash or maybe scraps because none of it's cowls, so it doesn't call for a lot of yarn of any one color. Sydney's design is knit with two colors. It's color work, it's very simple color work. But I plan to incorporate all of these different colors from my Hog Island gradient and also from my natural dyeing into this design. I think it's a really nice canvas to present some of my hand dyeing and hand spinning. So I'm very excited to uh, be trying this pattern by a new to me designer. And um, I think that I, it will challenge me to work with the yarn I have and to develop something that really showcases what I love about this gradient and what I've learned about dyeing with natural colors. Uh, so I, I've purchased the pattern. I have balled up all of the yarn, but I have not yet cast on this particular design. I'm waiting for March to give that a start. This is the Arlequin Cowl, A-R-L-E-Q-U-I-N, 
by Sydney Racco Toravello. And of course, I will link this as well as the bundle. I'll link to the bundle on the Solidarity Swap in case you are interested in looking through designs um, by designers with whom you may not already be familiar. So it's a really helpful tool to discover something new. You know, I really want to encourage listeners of this podcast to look through that bundle. So I'm going to be giving away a few of those patterns. I'm going to gift them. And what I'll do is I'll set it up so that if you comment on this episode on my Ravelry thread, I'll pick a few of those posts and gift the pattern either to you or to someone that you name in your post. Off the shelf. Today I'm going to talk a bit about a poet with whom I have long been familiar. And when I went to my poetry collection to find the one volume of hers that I know I've purchased, I couldn't find it and I think that I have lent it. (laughs) Again, I was really disappointed at first, but then I was sent online to look at some of her work and some more of her recent work and it's kind of resulted in a rediscovery so I guess I can't be too upset about these missing books of poetry and then I started recollecting others and I don't know if I lent a big stack to someone at one point or what happened but maybe I need to do some repurchasing Anyway, Natasha Trethaway is the poet. I first discovered her work called Bellox Ophelia. That's the one that I was looking for in a little bookstore in Princeton, New Jersey. I was struck by the cover of this volume because it has a black and white print done by E.J. Belloc. And there was a series that was found, I believe, well after his death, a series of photographs that he did in brothels in the red light district of New Orleans around the turn of the century. And the interesting or maybe like really troubling thing is that these photographs, these these plates were discovered in his own collection but many of them had been defiled or scratched out, like some of the faces had been scratched out um, when they were found or otherwise damaged. So it's kind of a mystery. There's a lot of mystery surrounding this piece. The print that's used for the cover of Belloc's Ophelia is, has not been damaged. And in the collection, Natasha Trethaway imagines life in the red light district through the lens of this particular, I guess, quote unquote, Ophelia, that's the name she was given in the print. Um, And she blends that with experiences and observations of her own throughout the work. The particular area of New Orleans was sometimes referred to as Storyville and so Storyville appears within the volume and uh, there's a lot of first person 
voice that really reaches back through time and circumstance to connect with what such a young woman may have been thinking and feeling at the time. It's incredibly powerful. It's sort of like a work of drama. It's this very interesting um, point where art and poetry collide. So Bellux Ophelia is an example of ekphrasis or ekphrastic poetry, poems that are based on a work of art or use some kind of painting, um, real or imagined, uh, as the basis for the imagination that's carried out in the poem. Since becoming familiar with Natasha Trathaway through that collection, I then discovered domestic work. She uh, was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for a collection called Native Ground, but then I was not at all familiar with her most recent collection, which is a 2018 collection called Monument. And so in searching around on the internet, I found a lot more about her. I've ordered that collection, and I'd like to share a little bit about it and a piece from it with you today. This is a description of the book. It was long listed for the 2018 National Book Award for Poetry. Um, and I believe this is written by um, Marilyn Nelson. Layering joy and urgent defiance against physical and cultural erasure, against white supremacy, whether intangible or graven in stone, Trethaway's work gives pedestal and witness to unsung icons. Monument draws together verse that delineates the stories of working-class African-American women, a mixed-race prostitute, one of the first black Civil War regiments, mestizo and mulatto figures in casta paintings, Gulf Coast victims of Katrina. Through the collection, inlaid and inextricable, winds the poet's own family history of trauma and loss, resilience and love. In this setting, each section, each poem drawn from an opus of classics, both elegant and necessary, weaves and interlocks with those that come before and those that follow. As a whole, Monument casts new light on the trauma of our national wounds, our shared history. This is a poet's remarkable labor to source evidence, persistence, and strength from the past in order to change the very foundation of the vocabulary we use to speak about race, gender, and our collective future. I will link to an interview I found that she did on NPR following the publication of this book. I'd like to share with you a uh, a poem from Monument that I have found on Poetry Foundation website. The title is Meditation at Decatur Square, and Decatur refers to Decatur, Georgia, where there is a Confederate monument on display. It continues to be on display because even though there has been... Um, Kind of an injunction, I suppose, to remove it, there are restrictions. 
So it needs to be removed, but it can't be removed until some other group or organization agrees to claim it and display it elsewhere. And despite the attempts of um, elected officials indicator, they have not been successful in identifying some other group uh, to take it and display it elsewhere. And so it continues to be, you know, the target of a lot of conversation. And it was recently, just at the beginning of February, it was the target of some defiling. Someone threw red paint on it and also uh, paint on another um, monument nearby. So there's, you know, a lot of um, very complicated national discussion and conversation surrounding these monuments. And it's very um, interesting way to have a meditation on race, ethnicity, identity in the United States. So this is meditation at Decatur Square. In which I try to decipher the story it tells, this syntax of monuments flanking the old courthouse. Here a rough outline, like the torso of a woman great with child, a steatype boulder from which the Indians girdled the core to make of it a bowl and left in the stone a wound. Here the bronze figure of Thomas Jefferson, quill in hand, inscribing a language of freedom, a creation story, his hand poised at the word happiness. There is not yet an ending, no period, the single mark intended or misprinted that changes the meaning of everything. Here, too, for the Confederacy, an obelisk, oblivious in its name, a word that also meant the symbol to denote in ancient manuscripts the spurious, corrupt, or doubtful. At its base, forged in concrete, a narrative of valor, virtue, states, rights. Here it is only the history of a word, obelisk, that points us toward what's not there. All of it palimpsest, each mute object repeating a single refrain. Remember this.